All right, y'all. Long time no here. It is Eric. I hope y'all remember me. I haven't been gone that long. I know it's only been a week since the final episode of For Colored Nerds, but we wanted to give y'all one more gift to show our appreciation. So even though you won't be hearing me as much on the mic anymore, you can still hear from our very own Brittany Luce on NPR's It's Been a Minute. All right, so I know I try to very rarely to say nice things about Britney, but seriously, y'all, you need to check out It's Been a Minute. Britney's been covering everything from Spirit Halloween's unending life cycle to all the drama around Elon Musk and Twitter. She's done stuff on Taylor Swift. I don't even really mess with Taylor Swift like that, but I was engrossed, okay? And today, we have Britney's interview with Georgia gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams. Yes, they discuss Abrams's up and downs on the campaign trail, politicking in the Deep South, and even her thoughts on the term Black Girl Magic. And Brittany chats with Christina Greer, a political scientist at Fordham University, about Abrams's strategy, a legacy of Black women politicians, and a group she calls JBs. Who are the JBs? <laughs> well, guess what? You're going to have to listen in to figure out what that means. So you are very, very welcome. Here is It's Been a Minute with the one and only Brittany Luce. In 2022, there are three Black women running to be governor from a major party. There's Yolanda Flowers in Alabama, Deirdre DeGier in Iowa, and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. If any one of them becomes governor, they will have broken through hundreds of years of history because no Black woman has ever been elected governor in the United States. And today, I'm asking, why not? Of the three, Abrams is most likely to win. She's going to lay out her vision for governing and what it would mean for a Black woman to win in the Deep South. But first, I need to clear up a tiny misconception with a woman who has spent her career studying Black candidates, Dr. Christina Greer. I have to admit that it's surprising to me uh, that the first Black female gubernatorial candidate that has actually had a real shot at winning comes from the <laughs> South. Like, I'm from the North. And, you know, I, I know that, that racism knows no geographic bounds, clearly. But the long-held narrative has been that Southern anti-Black racism is harsher, is more obvious, is more direct. Like, not exactly the prime environment for America's first Black woman governor. Yeah. I know I said that I'm surprised. <laughs> and I feel like, mm, like, am I, am, is it strange that I'm surprised? Am I totally wrong? Like, no. like, is it surprising to you that the South would lead this history? It's not surprising that the South would lead. And here's why. One, we have to remember what Malcolm X reminds us that anything South of the Canadian border is the U.S. South. So mm. yes, indeed, the South may be more direct and overt with their racism, but wouldn't that be a lot more helpful when you're running for office? Because <laughs> you know who is and who is not voting for you, right? I mean, I think that directness is actually quite helpful. Keep in mind, Southern states have way more percentages of Black people, right? It's true. <laughs> like, it's hey, true. listen, let's leave Detroit. The Michigan Black numbers aren't that robust, uh, outside <laughs> of Detroit and a few other, I can, you know, sort I can, of small cities. I can just seriously attest to that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, listen, think yeah. about New York. I mean, we've got six major cities, sure, that have significant Black populations. But, right. you know, like, when we think about African Americans, we are not dis diffuse in, in record percentages. No, the majority of folks are in the South, and people also are, I consider it myself, migrating back down South. Yes, uh, reverse migration is real, um, as is, you know, sort of uh, black immigration and 
folks are going for political, social, and economic networks. Right. So the, this idea that Stacey Abrams would find success in the state of Georgia isn't terribly shocking to me because Georgia has been diversifying in all senses of the word for quite some time. Stacey Abrams has run for governor before. She tried and lost in 2018. We are a mighty nation because embedded in our national experiment is the chance to fix what is broken. And for four years, she's been working on her second bid while also making earth-shifting strides in voter protections in Georgia and throughout the country. And for four years, the nation has watched to see if she could make history. And I promise you, we will get it done. Thank you. You know, you are so close. You are, again, so close (laughs) to making history as the first Black woman governor ever in the United States. But in 2018, you're fresh on the national stage. And now you are, I think it's an understatement to say, very well-known and something of an icon for many people. But but I think what can come with that is, in my view, this aspect of saviorhood that I have noticed people projecting onto you. And that would be a lot for me. Is that a lot for you? So there was a, a recent story that said that, you know, have I lost my magic? I've always chafed at the Black girl magic narrative. Hmm. Because it presumes a lack of agency on the part of the people voting, a lack of agency on the part of the people I'm talking to, and it imbues me with almost messianic responsibility that I didn't ask for, don't accept, and will not do. Look, I can't be brand new again. (laughs) There's there's no way to go back and be who I was in 18 before people had heard my name, before they cared Mm -hmm. about it. And I don't want to because that would also erase all of the progress we've made. It would erase – the communities that are finally getting a seat at the table because we've had these public conversations. Hmm. I am an avatar and people pour into avatars, both their loves and their hates. I can't do any of this alone, but I can be a part of changing systems, changing access, changing opportunity. And that's the job I want. You know, there's a criticism of your campaign, even from within your own party, that you're not doing enough to reach out to Black men. And and some recent polling has shown that you're not as popular with Black men as you were around this time in 2018. I've seen your campaign is doing some events to speak directly with Black men, um, like the one you just held with Charlemagne the God and, and 21 Savage very recently at the time of our conversation. How do those campaign events address that criticism that you've received? So I want to actually dispel some misinformation. Mm -hmm. So number one, uh, around this time in 2018, I actually was in almost the exact same place Mm -hmm. when there's rarely polling that actually breaks down black men versus black women. Mm. It's usually aggregated. And I am polling fairly comfortably with – now, there are some polls with black men versus black women. And across the board, black men tend to be more conservative than black women. It Mm -hmm. is always true. And I am polling – around the same with black voters as I did in 18. Mm -hmm. But what we have to remember is that black voters tend to be treated as turnout voters, meaning you only ask who they're going to vote for, but not if they're going to vote. Mm. I understand that for our communities, the persuasion question is, are you going to vote or not? And so when you look at the undecided number, Mm -hmm. it is typically not a question of, will they support me or my opponent? It's, will they vote or not vote? And that's not a commentary necessarily on me. It's a commentary on our politics. And so my response has been, both in 2018 and 2020, to to have conversations. This is not new. 
uh, I'm getting a lot of attention for these conversations, but I had the same conversations in 18. It's one of the ways we built the multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition that turned out in such strength. It's just that this time, because I'm being, as I was before, very forthright about the fact that I need to engage every single facet of the community, that suddenly it is a stark narrative about, oh my God, how is she doing? As opposed to, isn't she doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. I've had conversations for the last year about these issues because Black men are not monolithic. Black people are not monolithic. Our needs are not monolithic. And thus, anyone saying they're standing for office has to be willing to engage those substantial populations in conversation. And so I, I think it's very important that we not let punditry masquerade as truth. The conversation around Black male voters, it feels more public for you right now. But you were yes. having those same conversations back in 2018. And also just something that I know from just being a Black woman in the world is that that criticism follows a lot of Black female politicians yes. and also just <laughs> Black women who have power in general. And I wonder, you know, you're a sister, you're a daughter, a friend. Does that criticism hurt you, like, emotionally? Well, as a politician, my responsibility is to always investigate and say, is it real? So we did. When I heard this rumor, I'm like, oh, my God, is it true? So we asked. We oversample in our polling. Hmm. And that's why I'm not worried. I'm not worried because our numbers tell us that I'm where I was. But it, the numbers also tell me that the reality in Georgia of the last 20 years has soured black men on politics. Hmm. Legitimately so. They are over-incarcerated. Georgia has one of the highest incarceration rates in the nation, and black men are disproportionately represented. Georgia is a booming economic state, but black people only get 2.2% of the business revenue, even though we're 32% of the population. Our unemployment rate for black men is higher than it is for other populations. And so there is a legitimate distrust of politics and of politicians that I refuse to be Again, to use my word, to be facile about. I refuse to pretend it doesn't exist. And because I'm running for governor, it's kind of in the public space that I'm having these conversations. But to your underlying point, it's always painful to me when I know that my brothers, that my dad, that my brothers-in-law, that my friends are in pain. And that it is always a reflexive pain to think that someone thinks I'm not paying attention. And to read stories about how I'm not paying attention or how black people don't like me, of course you don't want to hear that. But <laughs> I am sufficiently comfortable in my approach that I will never take a population for granted, but I will also not be told a story about who we're talking to that's not told by the very people I'm speaking to. How would a Stacey Abrams win in 2022, governor of Georgia, how would that shift the political climate of the Deep South? Number one. So yes, I will be the first black woman governor in American history. And what that means in the Deep South is seismic. Black women have just recently started coming into their own in executive positions. But in Georgia, the governor is an extraordinarily powerful job. Mm. Stand your ground was signed by a governor, not by a president. The evisceration of the social safety net started with a governor, not, not with Congress. Mass incarceration didn't start in D.C. It started in California. Jim Crow started and was the product of Southern governors. And so having a governor from the South whose grandfather, my, my mother's father, was born 25 years after the end of slavery, I carry with me a legacy and a vantage point 
that says that I'm going to work harder than anyone ever has to live up to the legacy and and the opportunities I have been granted. But I also understand that as a woman, I can make certain that Georgia becomes an oasis state for those women who cannot get access to reproductive care across the entire swath of the Sun Belt unless they can make Mm. it to Georgia if I'm the governor. I can make certain that we reduce access to guns in the state of Georgia by making certain that we have gun safety, that we have more background checks, because right now Georgia is part of what's called the lead pipeline. I mean, in the past two weeks, I, I I watched the show FBI and all of its iterations, so FBI, FBI Most Wanted, FBI International. There have been two episodes about Georgia, one about how guns purchased in Georgia are used to commit crimes across the country, and a second about how getting an abortion in Georgia was made impossible for a woman who was raped because she lived in Tennessee, got raped in Florida, tried to come to Georgia for help, and could not get the help she needed. Those are fictional representations of a very strong reality that as governor in Georgia can be transformative for the South. Having a governor who actually believes in a woman's bodily autonomy, who believes in economic access, who believes that communities of color deserve economic parity. It's not about taking away from anyone else. It's about the politics of expansion. And that's what I want to do. Well, Leader Abrams, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful. So now we've heard from Stacey Abrams, but let's put her in context. Abrams wants to be the first Black woman to be elected governor in the United States. But for Dr. Christina Greer, someone who has long studied how Black political leaders gain power, Abrams is the culmination of a long history of Black women fighting for influence. If Fannie Lou Hamer and Barbara Jordan had a baby, 50 years later, it'd be Stacey Abrams. (laughs) Fannie Lou Hamer and Barbara Jordan, two iconic Black political leaders both from the South and both effective changemakers in radically different ways. Barbara Jordan was an insider who built coalitions first in the Texas State Senate and then as the first Black woman from the South elected to the House of Representatives. Fannie Lou Hamer was an outsider who mobilized grassroots networks to challenge the Democratic Party. For Christina Greer, Abrams is a hybrid, someone who organizes inside and outside the system. It's really important also to remember Barbara Jordan was Black American, as is Stacey Abrams, as is Fannie Lou Hamer. As someone who wrote a book called Black Ethnics, I do actually think about the power of ethnicity. So Mm -hmm. Shirley Chisholm, Guyanese. Kamala Harris, Indian and Jamaican, right? Mm -hmm. Barack Obama, Kenyan and Kansan. So when we think about people who are able to be on this kind of national stage, it isn't lost on me that they're not Black American. Right. If... U.S. chattel slavery is the original sin of America. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is still something about the dichotomous relationship between Black people and white people, Black people who are descendants of U.S. chattel slavery, that is still unresolved. You know, you you brought up um, a really great point, which is... Mm, Tell me more. (laughs) Well, in, in talking about Barack Obama, Shirley Chisholm, Kamala Harris being not of what I call like African-American or or Black American heritage. Stacey Abrams is. The JBs. What do you say? The JBs? Like when people are like, oh, where are you from? It's like, oh, I'm from Detroit. It's like, no, where are you from from? It's like uh, Louisiana, then Detroit. And then it's like, no, where are you from? Like, where are your people from? You're like, oh, I'm just Black. So, you know, in college, we (laughs) were just, it's like, oh, we're the JBs. JBs. We're the just Blacks. Right. Because everyone else is like Guyana, you know, Bermuda, whatever it may be. Yeah, they're like bringing a whole extra flag yeah. and like different music, a whole national cuisine. And I'm just like, yes. 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 I'm like, 
Here, here we I am, JP. Here we are. But we all, but here's the thing. We also have our own cuisine. We absolutely do. Like we also have our own customs and traditions. Like, I mean, that's that's the thing that like we can't forget that the JBs actually are an ethnic group. How does that, like, how does Stacey Abrams being a JB translate to how people read and understand her? Well, I think being a descendant of U.S. chattel slavery does give you a perspective on what this country is and what she can be. Mm. And so I'm going on the research for my book, Black Ethnics, but, you know, I asked a question about sort of the pursuit of the American dream and like Mm -hmm. how feasible it was. And I hypothesized that sort of Africans would be the most invested, Caribbeans in the middle, Black Americans the least invested. We've been here the longest and, you know, that sort of tracks. But what happened and what I found in my data was that Africans, not surprisingly, the most invested in the American dream. Part of that has to do with an exit option. Part of it has to do with length of time as the various groups have been here. Sure. But then Black Americans were in the middle and Afro-Caribbeans were the least invested in the American dream. And I think what what I found with my interviews with Black Americans and the data was that Black Americans like, we know who this country is. Mm. You win some, you lose some. That is literally the phrase that people kept saying. You win some, you lose some. So it's like, hey, you might end up going to a top college and getting a great job at NPR. You might get caught with some weed and end up in jail for five years and the rest of your life is history. Hey, that's just what this country does. Like, we've seen it. I think the frustration that we're seeing with Caribbean immigrants is that you know, my data showed, they were like, well, wait a minute. I came here the same time as someone from Asia, someone from Latin America. Why mm. is it that my life chances are totally different just because I have a Black prefix to my immigration status? Mm. So this is a much larger com- conversation about the power of Black ethnicity. And so I think a lot of Black Americans, Stacey Abrams included, fundamentally understand who this country is, but they also understand the possibility of this country. And that's why I call Stacey Abrams a pragmatic progressive. I don't think mm-hmm. that she's like, I'm building a utopia. I don't think that that's what she's doing at all. I think that she's taking the facts that we have and understands the limitations and capacities of various people within the state of Georgia to move forward. And she's she's pushing them to think about a different vision. And it's not just whites. It's not just blacks. It's like a holistic vision of like what Georgians could look for. You know, you, you brought up this whole like pragmatic progressive thing a couple of times. At what point do you think Black candidates running for office in the United States, at what point do you think they'd be able to move beyond pragmatism and have that be a central part of their platform? As long as there's white racism, I don't think you can move beyond pragmatism. Hmm. I mean, Black voters are the most strategic voters. We oftentimes have to vote against our own first choice options because we understand white voters. We understand that the vast majority of white voters see any gains for anyone else as a loss for them. So this is, you know, where you have, you know, people dying of whiteness. Jonathan Metzl has that great book, Dying of Whiteness, where white voters consistently vote against policies for themselves that could help them, whether it's gun violence or healthcare or the environment, you name it, because they fear that somebody else would get something. It's like, that's not even, Hmm. that's not how it works, guys. But, you know, again, as LBJ said, if you can convince them that it's going to, for someone else, then you can just keep them under your thumb. And so I, I do think that, you know, Black people understand white people. We have to understand white people. We have to know the capacity of white people because that's mm. the only way you survive in this country, let alone thrive. We have to. It is a survival tactic. So you may want something, but you understand the capacity of a white voter. Where it's like, well, that's not going to happen. So you vote pragmatically. Like, mm. I don't think that the vast majority of 
Black voters were like, I love Joe Biden. This is going to be the greatest vote in my lifetime. But they're like, you know what, Bernie Sanders? This isn't going to sell. So we understand our mere survival is such that we have to understand our communities, but also the capacity of white voters to to agree or disagree. Okay, so I have to ask you, I mean, this is like this is like the big summation question. After everything we talked about, the books you've written, have yet to write, are writing currently. Um, now you sound like my editor. <laughs> TikTok career, TikTok. <laughs> well, I'll say this also. I mean, in addition to Stacey Abrams, there are two other Black women who are also running gubernatorial races, one in Alabama, one in Iowa. So we got three. To say nothing of the Senate. Speaking specifically, though, about governorship, do you believe that a Black woman will win a governorship in 2022? I see you waffling. Like physically, you are waffling. You are back um, and you're yeah. vacillating. I would love to see it. But so much of what I teach my students is, you know, differentiating between what you want to happen and what you think will happen. If we are going to see a Black female governor, I think the best chance is encapsulated in Stacey and her team, right? Her team mm. that understands the full state. They're not putting all their eggs in the Atlanta basket. Like, they fully understand this is a statewide strategy. What are the costs if Stacey Abrams loses again in 2022? Yeah, I hope that it doesn't dissuade people who were really galvanized into feeling like, oh, this system is rigged and, you know, mm. there's no need in participating. I really hope that that's not the case. And I know that, you know, obviously Stacey Abrams is has talked to voters about like, hey, sometimes your candidate doesn't win. That doesn't mean that you pack up your marbles and you leave democracy forever, you know, that that's not how it works. But I do, you know, in, in talking to my students, especially for first-time voters, it's sort of if their candidate doesn't win that first time and that sense of disappointment is so severe, it is really imperative that you sort of capture them to make sure that they don't feel like this has been it. Hmm. Because that's surefire way for nothing to change in the future. Dr. Greer, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. It's a, it was a real pleasure and very enlightening to talk to you today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You can find and listen to more of It's Been a Minute and Brittany twice a week, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear it once a week on your local NPR station. All right, y'all, check it out. <laughs>